Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I dot com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. This is Outside In. I'm Justine Paradise. Imagine you're in a grassy meadow and you're digging a hole. As you dig you might start to notice that the soil has layers, almost like a cake. The top layer, which runs a foot deep, maybe more, is rich and dark, almost black. Below that, there's a clay layer. It's lighter, maybe almost the color of rust. And there's a lot going on, especially in that top layer. Worms dragging leaves down into the soil, spiders on the hunt, Tendrils of fungus negotiating with plant roots. It is not just dirt, but a matrix of activity. Porous, sticky, alive. Now, watch as a huge metal blade slices through it, flips it upside down, and smashes it up. In general, farming as we know it dramatically changes the land. And it's not just the obvious stuff like the use of cancer-causing pesticides or antibiotics sprayed onto orange trees. It's also a basic practice that happens both on huge industrialized operations and on little local organic farms too. Tilling. It's one of the first steps in a typical growing season turning the soil. It's often done before planting as a technique to manage weeds and incorporate things like compost into the soil. But tilling, or the more intensive version, plowing, 
has lots of side effects. It breaks up soil structure, that dirt layer cake. It triggers the release of huge amounts of carbon. And after tilling, the earth is essentially bare of plant growth, which means the soil is exposed, vulnerable to two of the biggest forces of erosion on the planet, wind and water. Especially when you add a bad drought. These were exactly the kinds of conditions which famously led to the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. Settlers plowed the native grassland for their homesteads. They called this breaking the prairie. Without those roots to hold the dry dirt, strong prevailing winds kicked it up into clouds of dust, darkening the sky, all the way in Washington, D.C. The Dust Bowl is a dramatic example, but not a singular one. Globally, we are still losing fertile soil from farmland at alarming rates, way faster than the rate that soil is being created. I was maybe 19, 20 years old when I was learning a lot of this. I was starting to wonder if there's any such thing as a farm that isn't ultimately bad for the land. This all felt like a very necessary and kind of a dire question. But it was around that time that I came across something that would completely change the way I approached and thought about farming. Decades before, there was such a thing as international permaculture conferences or certified organic tomatoes for sale in the grocery store. There was a farmer on an island in southern Japan who turned his back on modern agriculture and devoted his life to finding another way. A natural way of farming. Could there really be such a thing? Today, if you pay a visit to a certain kind of farm or garden, one that's a little untidy, with lots of weeds, maybe it looks more like a forest or a meadow than a place to grow food, check out the bookshelf. And don't be surprised if you see a dog-eared copy of this man's manifesto, The One Straw Revolution. This is a book that has been described by writer Michael Pollan as, quote, one of the founding documents of the alternative food movement. Over 40 years after it was first published, The One Straw Revolution has been translated into 25 languages, and it's admired by artists, writers, and philosophers. I'm Justine Paradise, and today on Outside In, we ask, what is it about this slim green book that has touched so many people? I couldn't quite figure out how he pulled it off, but he did. He was resisting what most people in Japan wanted. The journey brings us to that corner of Japan. <laughs> and the mountain, where its author, Masanobu Fukuoka, lived and farmed, to explore the possibility of a natural way of farming. It's raining really, really hard right now. 
And I hope you're not hearing that on the recording. So first up, let me introduce my collaborator for this story, writer Hannah Kirshner, who is joining me from Japan. Let's see if it eases up in a minute or two. She lives in a mountain town near the Japan Sea, where she works part-time in a sake brewery, and she writes. She wrote a book about craft and cultivation there. Okay, here we go. So to answer our question about why this famous little book you've maybe never heard of impacted so many people, we should begin with its author, Masanobu Fukuoka, and his origin story. Here's how he told it. It was the 1930s. Fukuoka was working as a plant pathologist in Yokohama, a big port city right next to Tokyo. He worked at the Customs Bureau, and his job was to inspect plants under the microscope for fungus and disease. Fukuoka had grown up 500 miles away on his family farm on the island of Shikoku. His family were landowners and well-respected. Actually, his father was their town's mayor. So, at only 25 years old, Fukuoka had moved from the farm to the city, and he was working with renowned researchers. But then he got sick. Acute pneumonia. He was in the hospital for a while, and after he recovered, something had changed in him. He felt unfocused at work and started taking these long, listless walks at night, wondering, what's the point of all this? And on one of these walks, in the very early morning, he collapsed in exhaustion on a hill overlooking the harbor. He watched the sunrise, and then, out of the silence, a night heron appeared, cried out, and flew off. Of this moment, Fukuoka wrote, quote, Everything I had held in firm conviction, everything upon which I had ordinarily relied, was swept away with the wind. I felt that I understood just one thing. I felt that I understood nothing. The next day, he went to work and handed in his resignation. This was the moment that Fukuoka turned away from city life, a steady salary, and a career in science, eventually writing the manifesto he's known for, The One Straw Revolution. Whenever I mention The One Straw Revolution, I'd say that people have either never heard of it or they love it. It's a farming manual unlike any I've read. Instead of explaining how to, say, increase yields or design a landscape or really very much specific instruction of any kind, the One Straw Revolution advises readers to essentially relinquish any sense of control and instead observe nature and ask the land what it needs. It's a method that Fukuoka called Shizen Noho, the natural way of farming. But he also called it, echoing this revelation, do-nothing farming. It's a very literary work, and I think he's crafting a certain persona. This is Professor Takeshi Watanabe. He teaches East Asian studies at Wesleyan University. Fukuoka does present some practical advice in the book, but much of his writing echoes a style of delivering philosophical lessons through anecdotes or riddles. Even the whole idea of do-nothing farming and the do-nothing is very much a literal borrowing from Taoist teachings. And as for that awakening by the harbor... His story there at the beginning has echoes of Buddha's life, or a kind of an awakening that a sage has. It's hard to know how much of the story is true in a very literal sense, but that's not really the point. 
This moment in Japan and in the world in general, the 1930s, it was an electrifying time. It was the decade of the first television broadcast of Amelia Earhart's flight across the Atlantic. But Masanobu Fukuoka turned his back on all that and went home to his family farm. According to his revelation, he knew nothing, and he would approach farming in the same way. When he got back to the farm, he convinced his father to let him put his ideas into practice in their rice fields and citrus orchard. And one of the most dramatic things he did was he stopped pruning the citrus trees. Pruning is a very old technique. It's even mentioned in the Bible. It's essentially trimming a plant to make it grow a certain way, shaping a topiary or bonsai, or in farming, to make it produce more fruit or leaves. But Fukuoka looked at this and saw unnecessary human interference. He said, quote, My conviction was that crops grow themselves. It should not have to be grown. So he abruptly stopped pruning the fruit trees. And the results were disastrous. The branches grew tangled, insects attacked, and he lost more than 400 trees. His father was shocked. He told his son to discipline himself and go get a job. But in that same moment... Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. War changed their lives. During the war, Fukuoka went back to work as an agricultural scientist, helping to boost wartime food production. Although in the final months of the war, he was drafted to dig foxholes at the front in preparation for a possible Allied land invasion of Japan, an invasion which never came. There is reason to believe that the Japanese city of Hiroshima, approximately the size of Memphis or Seattle or Rochester, New York, no longer exists. General Spot smiled when asked if the new atomic bomb would be dropped again in the near future. But by the time he returned to farming after the war, Japan had been absolutely devastated, and not just by the nuclear bombs, but firebombings all over the country. The Allied forces who had inflicted that devastation were then involved in rebuilding and restructuring the country, from the constitution to the way people farmed. After 1945, mechanization and pesticide use in Japan increased dramatically. During the war, people in Japan had endured food shortages and real hunger. So all these new chemicals and machines, they seemed like a miracle. People didn't have to hunch down and weed the rice fields anymore. They didn't have to pick caterpillars off cabbages one by one. Here again is Takeshi Watanabe. There's this sense of pursuing technology, pursuing growth at all costs. And it, it was in some ways also a reaction against World War II and this idea that Japan needed to advance technologically uh, to become a first-rate country again. But even after the war, Fukuoka was still looking in the opposite direction. He is very much a maverick and somebody who was espousing a counterculture. And remember, Fukuoka had come from this technical research background, but now he viewed science as myopic, that it breaks down the world into smaller and smaller parts, so you lose sight of the whole. 
he doesn't believe in things or he doesn't do things just because people tell him to. In fact, he rejects chemical uh, fertilizers or pesticides because he's seeing the damage that they're doing to his, the ecology, to his farm. So he's actually being very rigorous, right? So Fukuoka continued his work towards a way of farming that worked with nature, without technology or herbicides, experimenting and testing his ideas for the next 30 years. Fukuoka's method of do-nothing is really about do-nothing unnecessary. And he distilled his practice into four principles. One, no cultivation, a.k.a. no tilling. Two, no fertilizer or prepared compost. Three, no weeding, either by tillage or herbicides. And four, no dependence on chemicals to solve problems. Weeds and insects are not enemies. And disease is just a symptom of something else amiss in the system. Rice is a good example of what these ideas look like in practice. When you picture a rice paddy, you might imagine a flooded field with rows of plants growing out of the water like reeds in a pond. This is what most Japanese farms look like. But actually, rice doesn't need to grow in water. It's just that it can, and lots of weeds can't, or at least not very well. So Fukuoka developed a particular technique of growing rice, blending very old practices with methods derived from his own observations. Instead of transplanting seedlings in the late spring, he covered rice seeds in clay and scattered them directly into the field while it was still cold. He used a summer cover crop of clover and a winter crop of barley or rye to control weeds. He never tilled the fields, instead letting roots and insects aerate the soil and he only flooded the fields for two weeks. Another practice that Fukuoka is known for is seed balls. He sowed vegetables in his orchard by mixing them with clay and forming balls, and then tossing them between the trees. These days, guerrilla gardeners call these seed bombs. And here's the thing. Fukuoka said... That with these techniques, his farm produced just as much food as what he called scientific agriculture, without all the problems that come with it. So the term do-nothing is easy to misinterpret. Fukuoka doesn't mean being lazy or inactive. His way of farming involves precise timing and a lot of hard work. And he felt our lives would be more satisfying, and we'd have fewer problems if we could be more in tune with nature. And that message was about to really resonate with people all around the world. That's coming up after a break. Outside In is a member and listener-supported show. We rely on listeners to take the leap to donate to support the reporting. If you're able, it's quick and easy. Just go to our website, outsideinradio.org, and click Donate. And thank you so much. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. 
Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Picture this. You're on a John Deere compact tractor, enjoying the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Okay, 1960s, 1970s, Japan. Astro Boy was on TV. Cup Noodle was invented. Cup Noodle! (laughs) But all this rapid industrialization was starting to have consequences. Smog, industrial pollution, there are a few really big cases that happened in Japan at that time. In one city, Minamata, people started experiencing scary symptoms. Mood swings, loss of vision and hearing, and in some cases, death. People eventually realized that a chemical company was dumping wastewater into a bay where people harvested shellfish. And what came to be known as Minamata disease turned out to be mercury poisoning. But this is really the time in the 60s when people realized that economic growth at all costs may not be the answer. Arguably, environmental activism was, and still is, not so mainstream in Japan, but some people had started to hear about Fukuoka and his methods. He published articles and appeared on TV. Scientists came to his farm to try to figure out why his methods worked so well. And Fukuoka mentored young seekers who'd made the pilgrimage to his farm to learn. They came from within Japan and from outside the country, too. Fukuoka would have them stay up on the mountain in little huts in the citrus orchard. They lived as he had while he was developing his system of farming, without electricity or running water, and ate a simple diet of miso soup, brown rice, and pickled vegetables. As Takeshi points out, Fukuoka embodied kind of a persona, especially to people from the West. There's very much this kind of wise old Asian sage, I think, image that he projects, right? He has that white kind of beard, wispy beard, and he he spews these kind of like nonsensical, like contradictory kinds of words of wisdom. And he has that kind of vibe to him, which I don't, you know, I think it was just him, but it obviously, I think, tapped into stereotypes or certain fantasies that many people were looking for in Asia. This was a time when Asian philosophy was starting to look real appealing for folks in the Western counterculture. In the 50s, the beat poets. In the 60s, the Beatles. 
who studied transcendental meditation in India. And then came the hippies. It's very much, I think, in line with the beat generation and with this kind of um, kind of rebellion against the West and Western modernism. And in the 70s, one young hippie was living on Fukuoka's mountain. An American named Larry Korn. Larry was in his 20s. He'd studied soil science at UC Berkeley and spent years traveling around Japan, often on farms. Fukuoka published The One Straw Revolution in Japanese while Larry was living on the mountain. And when Larry read the manuscript, it really appealed to him. Even the title, The One Straw Revolution, it's so well-timed to resonate with the counterculture. This idea that something as simple as a piece of straw can bring about great change. The book actually begins like this, quote, Seen at a glance, this rice straw may appear light and insignificant. Hardly anyone would believe that it could start a revolution. But I have come to realize the weight and power of this straw. For me, this revolution is very real. Larry excitedly helped get the book translated into English. Then he headed back to Berkeley, California, and started showing it to some of the most famous environmental thinkers of the day. An editor at the University of California Press, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Gary Snyder, and eventually writer and farmer Wendell Berry, who ended up editing the book and publishing it with the Rodale Institute. Now, these might not be household names for everybody, but... Trust me, they are titans in the world of sustainable agriculture in the second half of the 20th century. And at the time, uh, we did not want to eat anything that was grown with pesticides. We just didn't. This is my friend Robin Calderon. She was really involved with organic agriculture in Washington state. And she had her own farm where I worked sometimes when I was in middle school. In the 80s, Robin sold packaged herbs like rosemary, mint, and basil to supermarkets. And she grew them without pesticides or herbicides. But there wasn't an organic certification program. There was nothing like that. People could call their farm organic, but no one was checking if that's what they were really doing. Or the term could mean different things to different people. So she was part of starting the official organic certification program in Washington state. And one of her influences was the One Straw Revolution. At the time, I was studying um, Zen meditation. And so Fukuoka's book just uh, you know, absolutely moved me right in my heart because he talked about do-nothing farming, which I couldn't quite figure out how he pulled it off, but he did. To this day, a yellowed copy of The One Straw Revolution is still on her bookshelf. Because it was so special, because for me... He was a spiritual being. I mean, I don't know. I'm not saying spiritual in the religious sense. I'm saying spiritual in the connected sense. And so, yeah, he made the cut. <laughs> is, is farming spiritual for you? Yes. When I go out and work in my little vegetable garden, it gives back to me. Somehow, it rejuvenates my body. It calms my mind. Watching little seeds sprout, it's a miracle.
Shizen no Ho is not widely practiced in Japan. Fukuoka is much more famous outside the country. The book was translated into 25 languages, and it still inspires readers all over the world, and not just farmers. For instance, Do Nothing Farming was recently referenced by artist Jenny O'Dell in her New York Times best-selling book. But Fukuoka did not like to be lumped in with other forms of alternative agriculture. Natural farming was different. He was vocally critical of organic farming in particular. He once called it, quote, narrow natural farming. And in later writings, he put it this way, quote, Even organic farming, which everyone is making such a big fuss over lately, is just another type of scientific farming. In fact, when examined from a broader perspective, many such efforts to protect the natural ecology are actually destructive. Being part and parcel of scientific agriculture to begin with, it will be swallowed whole and assimilated by scientific agriculture. Plenty of people would argue that's exactly what happened. Including Robin Calderon. She said that over the years, the definition of organic has really been watered down. Meanwhile, Fukuoka's method, Shizen Noho, it's more of a way to live than a set of rules like organic farming, or an approach to landscape design like permaculture. It actually might have the most in common with indigenous practices around the world. In the 70s, a newspaper published by the Mohawk Nation called Akwasazni Notes published a review of the One Straw Revolution. Here's an excerpt, quote, Although the process he advocates arises in southern Japan, the philosophy and practice of the technique is amazingly close to that of native peoples prior to the introduction of European agriculture. For the most part, his message could have been spoken by a Lakota, a Seneca, or a Zuni traditionalist. It's not just farming, right? It's the way of farming. This is Takeshi again. And I think farming definitely for him is more than farming. It's more than a career. It's how one relates to the land, to earth, to the cosmos. In a way, I think Fukuoka has become an almost mythic figure, and his farm a mythical place. But while the power of natural farming might be in its philosophy, it also is an actual method. And I've always been curious to see it in practice, which is actually possible. Masanobu Fukuoka died in 2008, but his farm still exists. And I don't know why this was a surprise to me. Like, maybe it's because it just existed in my mind to some degree for so long. But of course it's a real place, and it's still the Fukuoka family farm. Masanobu Fukuoka's grandson is still living and farming on that mountain today. Like, you can go there. That's next on Outside In. That was the first of our two-part series on Masanobu Fukuoka and his method of do-nothing farming. The next part is available now, in your feeds, and on our website, outsideinradio.org. 
And that's where you'll also find links to more reading, pictures, and a way to sign up for our podcast newsletter. This episode was made in collaboration with Hannah Kirshner. Her book is called Water, Wood, and Wild Things, Learning Craft and Cultivation in a Japanese Mountain Town. It was written and reported by Hannah Kirshner and me, Justine Paradise. I also mixed and produced the episode. We were edited by Taylor Quimby with additional editing from Felix Poon and Outside In's executive producer, Rebecca Lavoie. We had translation help from Michael Thornton. Special thanks to Tim Cruz and the Land Institute, ethnobotanist Justin Robinson, Jeffrey Gray of Fenlake Farm, Paul Quirk of Ishiharaya Farm, Bill Vitek, and Atsushi Tada and Taro Nakamura, who work with the Masanobu Fukuoka Natural Farm. Music in this episode came from Patrick Patrikios and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a member-supported podcast. We rely on listeners like you to make the leap to support the show by donating, if you're able. And you can do that at outsideinradio.org. And thank you so much. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations... I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.